Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine, and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Sorry about that. Uh, I literally had to fly in from outer space. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. The story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, as always, that's all you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, I'm here, as the title suggests, to talk of the stories of film. And I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories, all the little bits and bobs, really, that go to make the films that we know and sometimes love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The films I tend to choose for this podcast, uh, they tend to have a bit of a mainstream leaning to them, really. They're films I'm certainly interested in. Uh, I'm not interested in punching down. I don't really do a lot of snark. I just use this podcast really to celebrate the fact that uh, films got made. That I, I think it's an achievement and a half to get a movie over the line, to get a film finished, to get a film released. And I'm really looking to champion and celebrate that. I talk about two films in each episode and I've already waffled on for too long and I want to get on with chatting about the movies. So I'm going to take you back to 1981 first of all. I can have a game of footy. Here's a clip from a trailer. In 1942, the Nazis thought they were sitting on top of the world, never suspecting that they could be toppled in one conflict, the most unusual battle of the war. It has been decided that a German national team will play a combined team from the prisoners of war of the occupied territories. That's crazy. Okay, I'm ready to sign up. Sign up, And you ought to be exhibited in Paris like performing fleas. What about me? Get out. A stacked game. The Third Reich's finest against a ragged bunch of prisoners of war. The Germans thought they had it made. They couldn't run about for 90 minutes, they'd be chucking their guts up. Am I good? Or am I good? What's your name? You know my name. What's your name? That then is a clip from the trailer of 1981's Escape to Victory, or Victory in certain parts of the world, directed by the late, great John Huston, written by, well, the story credit goes to Yabio Leblonsky, uh, Jord Milicevic, Jeff Maguire, and screenplay goes to Yablonsky and Evan Jones. The cast for this one, it's got half of Ipswich Town uh, in the early 1980s. It's got Sylvester Stallone, Michael Caine, Pele, Ozzy Ardiles, Bobby Moore, uh, Mike Summerby, Kevin O'Callaghan... Uh, uh, playing as a goalkeeper, even though he was a winger, uh, all sorts of bits and bobs like that. And then Max von Sydow is in the ensemble for this particularly unusual movie. Now, if you're not familiar with Escape to Victory, it is a, it was always billed a little bit as the great escape meets a football match. And the original concept for the film is actually a lot more serious than the version that we got. That the original script was penned by Yabio, uh, Yabo Leblonsky, and he fashioned a story based on, on the tale of of a football match between the Allies and the Germans for propaganda reasons during the Second World War. Now, there, there was some dispute about whether it was based on truth or not, and um, whether it was or wasn't has now been largely, dis, uh, it's largely just disputed, discredited really, that, that you, you would be remiss to say this is based on a true story. But nonetheless, there was the nugget of an idea in there, Le, uh, Jablonski penned his screenplay, and he got it to the producer Al Ruddy, now, Ruddy would then go on to make The Longest Yard and there was some dispute, but I can't afford lawyers, about how similar one project was to the other. So let me just say, for the purposes of any lawyers listening, they are entirely different films and couldn't be more different at all and they're very different and they're different. However, the script then slowly started making its way through the Hollywood system and in came Jeff Maguire, um, a screenwriter now known for films like In the Line of Fire, but he was 25 when he got to this one. And in an interview with, uh, it's a really excellent oral history I found uh, by at the website Radio Free Soccer, I advise searching and, and, and 
take you a look at. And he talked about how he was working then with uh, Jordi uh, Milicevic. And they, again, they fashioned a quite a serious screenplay for this one between them. Maguire said he'd done a lot of research on World War II and on the Nazis. And in his words, whatever I found was horrible, no matter what horrible thing I put in the movie, the Nazis had done way worse. And he described his draft of the film that would become Escape to Victory as pretty brutal in a lot of ways. Um, One of the consequences of that is he didn't treat the Germans particularly well in his draft either. And he said there are moments where people were being, quote, machine gunned ruthlessly. He'd envisaged the film as an R-rated production. And it was going, it was very clear this was going to be a much more serious war movie than the one that we ultimately ended up with. In then came, as the project started gaining some traction, uh, in came a producer by the name of Freddie Fields. Now, he'd enjoyed a hit as executive producer of American Gigolo. He'd worked on things like the Judy Garland show as an executive producer. And he would go on to do uh, Poltergeist 2, for instance, and the film Glory that came along in 1989. But Fields realised that for this film to be a commercial success, it also needed to appeal to a German audience. So that was going to be a little bit tricky. He also wanted uh, Pele worked into the film. He figured if we're going to have a football film, why not get the world's greatest player in the movie? Pele was certainly interested. He'd be 40 at the time he came to shoot the movie and wasn't play, wasn't far from the peak of his, uh, of his footballing powers, but still far better than pretty much every player on the pitch. Um, no disrespect to them. Fields then brought in uh, another writer, Evan Jones, to do the rewrites. Um, and I think it's Maguire who suggested that he would basically end up dumbing the film down. And so, but this project was gathering traction and was ready to go ahead. Now, it started popping up in the Hollywood trade Bible variety. The first record I could find of the movie was back in the summer of 1979. And it was announced at that point that the film Escape to Victory was going to be uh, directed by a man called Brian Hutton. Now, he was not an illogical choice. He directed a couple of World War II movies, Where Eagles Dare and Kelly's Heroes. And in common with both of those films was one member of the cast, a man called Clint Eastwood. You might have heard of him. And the uh, Variety openly speculated in its article that Eastwood was possible casting for the movie. As it happened, Eastwood didn't aboard the project and uh, Brian Hutton would depart within a matter of months. And so by the summer of 1979, the search was on for another director. There was still no cast in place either. Lloyd Bridges was a name that was mentioned at one point. Uh, Roger Moore was considered for the role of Colby, ultimately taken by Michael Caine. Um, A French actor by the name of Alain Delon, well, his casting was actually announced in the autumn of 1979, but he wouldn't appear in the movie. But the director was finally found, and Variety reported this in September of 1979, when John Huston, the legendary director of films like The African Queen, what a film that is, he had signed on the dotted line to make Escape to Victory. Now, the revisions kept coming for the screenplay to soften it and to and to open the film up a little bit, much to the disdain, as the story goes, of Yablonski, who really hated, hated, hated the, the finished film and what had been done with his original story. But nonetheless, Hollywood had control of this project now and on it was going. Now... The casting, well, Michael Caine, for one, was keen to do this particular film because he wanted to work with John Huston, who wouldn't want to work with John Huston. He also wanted to work with the producer, Freddie Fields, and he also wanted to work with Pele as well. It was Freddie Fields who would lure Sylvester Stallone, the highest profile, at least acting piece of casting in the movie. Um, and w- this came about in the late 1970s as um, as they were scouting around for just who to put in the movie. And in 19 19- 1979 the story goes that Stallone was looking to buy a house in the Malibu area he wanted a holiday home there and he went and viewed several properties one of which belonged to Freddie Fields after the viewing Stallone told Fields pretty much on the spot the house is too small not interested but Freddie Fields took his chance and he pitched the project to Sylvester Stallone before he left his house uh, Sly took the script away and with a week uh, within a week he was back saying he wanted to play the character of Hatch in the movie. And this certainly appealed uh, not unreasonably to the investors in the film too, that here was a, a, a big movie star. This was Stallone, pretty much at the height of his powers at this point. Rocky had won him an Oscar. Rocky 2 had come out in what, 79, 
Nine and Rocky Two had been a huge hit. He was actually in the midst of shooting the film Nighthawks um, when he would start preparing training to make Escape to Victory. But the fact that Stallone was going to be on the ensemble for the film, well, that would give it a shot at the US market and they were very keen to get him on board. Just going to when he did start doing his uh, training for the role, it soon became clear that he was going to need to be the goalie. I, I was always the one who was made to go in goal at school because let's just say I wasn't particularly good at going up front. I'm not suggesting Stallone wasn't. But under the stewardship of England World Cup winning goalkeeper Gordon Banks, Stallone would train during the weekends and he would shoot Nighthawks during the day and during the week. Now the training at first didn't go well because at first Stallone was reportedly a little cavalier diving around in goal until he injured his shoulder and his ribs and they wouldn't be the last injuries he'd sustain on this particular project. He would say uh, once filming had wrapped up that it physically had been more draining than the last Rocky movie had been. But then Stallone was absolutely new to football and so he was learning to play the game and so, I mean, that goes to one of the folklore stories around the movie. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it is a fun one where he apparently wanted his character in the film to score the winning goal. And he had to be pointed out to him that at that stage, the goalie wouldn't do that. Stallone, too, to his credit. I mean, he, he, he lost a lot of weight for this one. And I say to his credit because he was conscious about having to realistically depict a prisoner of war. And that's ultimately the core of the film, a, a bunch of prisoners of war in a football match against uh, against the German regime. And so, he, he again, he'd come off Rocky too. He'd come off doing Night Hawks and he knew he had to get his weight down to do the role justice. As for the footballers, well, uh, over a dozen professionals were hired that this is basically this was going to be a mix of acting talent and football talent. And they recruited footballers in from across the world. And uh, as, as I mentioned before, a good chunk of them happened to play for Ipswich Town Football Club. Now, Ipswich Town is going through a, a very good phase in its uh, in its existence at that point under the stewardship of its then manager, Bobby Robson. And uh, I think it was John Walk who uh, did or Russell Osman, uh, one of the two players, described that Robson called a players' meeting um, uh, during the season and asked if anyone was going uh, interested in going off over the summer and making a film during the closed season. And so a few of the players stuck their hands up, thinking they were going to go along as football advisors. Robson struck the deal for their fee. Um, they did try and renegotiate it whilst on the set. And let's just say it didn't go particularly well. And in fact, Russell Osman tells the, the tale that Ipswich is sent about, tells the tale of arriving on set of Escape to Victory thinking he was there to help with the football scenes and then being told he had dialogue with Michael Caine the following day. John Walk would tell Radio Free Soccer that they got there and realised, and at that point realised Pele, Sylvester Stallone and Michael Caine were involved and that this was going to be an actual film. Also in the uh, in the players' ensemble, his Ozzy Ardiles was in there, uh, but Bobby Moore, England World Cup winning captain, and it was Bobby Moore who called Manchester City's Mike Summerby to get him involved. Pele also uh, cast his net wide and helped rope in a few more players, and it was very clear that the ensemble of Escape to Victory was coming together. Now, with the film going ahead, the challenge then was where do you film it? Because the centrepiece of the movie is a football match that takes place in Paris in the early 1940s. And the problem with shooting in Paris and shooting in the actual stadium there was Paris had just looked too modern. They were going to be filming this at the start of the 1980s and they needed something a little bit more frozen in time. And so the location scouting took them around lots of places in Europe. They went to Ireland. Uh, they went to uh, they went around the UK as well they went to Canada at one point but there was cost as an issue that some places uh, around the world had suitable locations but it was going to cost anywhere from 25 30 million dollars to make the film there in the end they settled on Hungary um, where, which would afford them the chance to make the film on a far more modest 12 million dollar budget now the stadium that was used uh, that, 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 that in the story of Escape to Victory where it all ends up was actually the same uh, the same destination for the film Chariots of Fire whereas Chariots of Fire had recreated that stadium uh, in the Wirral on Merseyside um, what Escape to Victory did is it found the MTK Stadium in Hungary um, and again this afforded the fact that it just looked a older bluntly it's no nice way to say that really um, but as a consequence once they'd found the stadium they were then able to set up the rest of the film in, in Hungary um, as a, a set report appeared in Film Review magazine and it's November 81 issue and it describes how uh, 
they built a three acre site just outside of Budapest on which they then built the prison compound for the movie and this allowed them to shoot the entirety of the film in Hungary. Now they had to sandwich it into the closed football season otherwise they wouldn't be able to get all of the players that they wanted and the actual physical production was intended to go on for around five weeks. But it's fair to say there were quite a few stories around this one. Filming was set to begin then on the 26th of May 1980 and there was a, a break uh, it's worth noting in the production when the American Screen Actors Guild staged a strike and this meant production had to stop and that caused a problem. There was a bit of a ticking time bomb on this one that the Hungarian government um, had only allowed them 12 weeks in the country to shoot the film and it would be fair to say the Hungarian government was not keen to let them have any more than that and thus they were they, they were counting on the Screen Actors Guild strike to be resolved in time to allow them to finish the physical production of the movie but it got to the point where they nearly had to shift elsewhere at the last minute. John Huston went off and scouted uh, different locations in France at one point uh, thankfully for the production the strike was resolved in time for them to be able to get back up and running and get the footage they needed before their time in Hungary was up. Now, Michael Caine writes entertainingly about this, uh, about making Escape to Victory in his memoir. And uh, he, he talks, uh, he's done a couple of memoirs. This all comes from What's it, uh, What's it All About, which I think was his first off the top of his head. And he said that he found Stallone fine to work with and got on with him. He said he found him very exhausting. Caine writes, he never stopped exercising or running during the entire shooting of the film. Every time we finished a scene, we all slumped in our chairs and watched Sly run continuously round the nearest open space space or if there was no open space he would do push-ups and sit-ups and Kane writes that he lost three pounds just watching him. But also Stallone was not always on set um, because he was writing the next two Rocky films uh, when he wasn't being called for filming. And so he didn't want to be called to the set if he wasn't going to be used for shooting. Kane writes he would get a trifle moody. And there was one point where it came to a head where he was where Stallone was called to for had an early call on set and he arrived on time. And then he had to wait three hours because the weather changed. And so something else needed to be shot. But given that this film was being shot outdoors, they were hostages to to the weather. Stallone was not a happy bunny. And at the end of that day's filming, he announced that whatever his call was going to be for the next day, he would be three hours late uh, to make up. For what had happened on that day and that's exactly what happened everybody had to wait for that extra three hours before Sylvester Stallone turned up so people looked to Michael Caine as the, the the other senior actor on the set to try and sort this out the rest of the cast were looking to him and they were expecting a bust up and so Kane uh, Kane took the took quite a lateral and clever approach here that he took Stallone aside and he said um, oh I had a party before I hadn't had the time to the night before I hadn't had time to learn my lines so thank you for being late um, then Kane said to Stallone that he had another party that day so could Stallone be late again tomorrow because that would help him again and after that after they'd had the quiet word I'm sure there were one or two more words in that conversation uh, Stallone was never late again on set. He wasn't entirely happy, though, with the direction of John Huston, the, the, the way that John Huston was directing him as an actor. And again, Stallone would, would confide in Kane over this because Huston was barely giving any direction at all. And so Stallone and Kane went to talk to the veteran director and he simply told them that if you've cast your actors correctly, there's not much you have to say to them. And he left it at that. And the pair walked away suitably chastened, although Stallone was apparently still grumbling a little bit. Houston was struggling on the film. He was uh, he was a lot older um, than he'd been in his prime, obviously. And uh, as Kane delicately wrote, a lifetime of fun was beginning to catch up with him. But Freddie Fields was very, very supportive and very uh, and very protective of John Houston. And Kane said that instead of playing the big producer, as a lot of them do, Fields was one of the best hands-on producers I ever worked with. He was there on the set every day and leading from the front, much to the help of of Houston, as as it sounds. Yeah. <laughs> 
It was on the whole quite a happy shoot, but not in a particularly happy place. That Hungary was still under communist rule at this point. It was a, a dark country to shoot in. And so Cain and Stallone at the end of every week would be very, very keen to get out of the place. That um, they, The story goes they would run off to the airport on the Friday just to get out for the weekend. And they'd pick a flight when they got to the airport. It'd either be Paris or London. I think Kane was more in, in, in spent more weekends in London. Um, but that left the rest of the players and the cast and the crew uh, behind, uh, let's just say, availing themselves of some of the local facilities. The, for the footballers on the set, it was difficult anyway because there was so much waiting around on a film set that the actual moments of filming would be, what, uh, uh, 10, 20 minutes here and there during the day. And so the, the footballers just played football, as you might expect. Um, and then they discovered the pleasures of the local hostelries in the evening. They weren't crucially given acting lessons on this. It was assumed that it was, it, it was all assumed that it was going to be learning on the job. And you had that weird paradox of footballers who were learning to be actors and actors who were learning to be footballers. Not that the actors were particularly making that great a fist at being footballers. That Kane was, uh, Michael Kane at this point was in his 40s. Football wasn't particularly his forte. And whilst Pele had been doing coaching, and Bobby Moore had told Michael Kane, uh, don't get in the other team's way, otherwise they'll kill you. I think it was Ozzy Ardiles who, who would say of the actor that um, he was awful and couldn't even run 20 yards. Stallone, meanwhile, he was still taking a battering. I mean, there's a, pro a couple of promo interviews on YouTube well worth seeking out where he talks about how um, how he was playing an inept goalkeeper, um, but he wanted to do all the diving around for real. He didn't want to use stump performers. He didn't want to cut away at crucial moments. He wanted people to see him saving the shots. There is, going spoiler light, a key penalty sequence in the movie. Um, and as a consequence, it took many, many shots for them to get the right shot, for want of a better way of putting it. That um, and, and Stallone would keep practising. Pele would take shots at Stallone between camera takes. And um, when it came to shooting that penalty bit, Stallone was urging them to kick the ball harder at him. Pele, that wasn't so much of a problem off camera, that he was kicking the ball so hard and so fast that one shot went straight through the net at the back of the goal and broke it. Uh, another Pele shot managed to break Stallone's finger. Had the match been played in the modern day, I think it's fair to say the physios would have been on the pitch an awful lot more than they were. I'm sure there's a VAR gag in this, but I'm not quite sure what it is. I would say that the football in Escape to Victory is the high point of the movie. And I, I, I'm re-watching it ahead of this. Um, when the goals start to go in, I, I, I'm still as utterly invested as the first time that I saw it. Um, and there aren't that many movies that shoot football. Um, and I'm talking association football, not American football, of course, uh, that shoot football particularly well. It's quite a hard sport to capture. And they certainly found this at first with Escape to Victory, because in came uh, a man called Robert Rieger, who was choreographing and directing the, the, the sporting sequences. But he'd planned out all the shots that he needed and, uh, and he was trying to instruct the players on them. But the problem was the action on the pitch as a consequence was far too static. They were trying little things like players going for a run and being followed by a camera, a camera operator on a motorbike going along the football field. Um, the problem there was the motorbike was bilging out so much smoke and making so much noise it made the footage not particularly viable. Instead what they ultimately went with was something a bit more relaxed that they placed cameras in strategic positions around the pitch and these aren't small cameras these were full 1980s film uh, cameras um, and they, they let the football play out a bit more naturally and as a consequence, the, 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 the footage that you ultimately see in the final movie, there was only one sequence in there that was very overtly choreographed. And that's when Pele does an overhead kick. And so not many players could attempt the kick that Pele does in the movie, yet alone after take after take after take after take. But the first time he tried it, the keeper pulled off a wonder save because he couldn't shake the instinct that he's supposed to save the goal. Second one went over the bar, but then Pele kept hitting the target by take 12 they had it. It's also worth noting that uh, Michael Caine has leg double 
in this one that uh, Ke- the, the footballer Kevin Beattie would double for Michael Caine's legs in a couple of sequences of, of, of trickery on the football pitch. And also they used a, a trick of, they had a stadium that could hold, what, 30,000, 40,000 people. And they only had 6,000 fans actually in it that there was a call for locals to come along and be extras, which they gladly took up. And 6,000 is a huge amount of extras anyway. But they kept having to shut down and move the fans to other parts of the stadium to keep getting across the impression that the stadium was full. The film then went into post-production and, and infamously uh, a couple of people were, were dubbed that John Walk, the uh, Scottish midfielder, uh, suddenly has a far posher voice in this movie than he does in real life. He's been quite open about that, so I think I can say that. Um, but the film then headed to cinemas on July the 31st in the US, 1981. And the reviews were relatively positive. But going back to Jeff Maguire uh, in that interview that he gave, right that, that I talked about right at the start, he talked about just how much this had been softened and he says quote I remember one reviewer saying it was like World War II in a parallel universe where the Nazis were decent guys and that's kind of how I felt about it as well and I think there's little argument that it, it, it's one of the friendliest depictions of the Nazis uh, of Nazi Germany and the, and the Nazi officers that you see in a feature film conversely it's also one of the most popular and arguably the best for Football film that's been that's been put on screen, and whilst its UK original release, it didn't do great guns either. It was said it was the film had done around five million at first after its first few months in exhibition. It did it did hit in other countries around the world and gradually would make its money back. Um, but also in the UK, of course, it became a perennial television favourite and kept popping up on the schedules. And its reputation has grown and grown and grown and grown to the point that the players who took part in the film are as famous for that as they are for their football careers. Perhaps Pele and Bobby Moore accepted there. Stallone for, uh, would go straight from the making. I'm thankful again to Film Review for this, for the making of his skate to victory to go off and do Rocky Three. So he would have to bulk up again because he was going to go and have to fight Mr. T this time. And then over time, the, as affection for Escape to Victory or Victory, uh, if you prefer, has continued to grow, there's been ongoing talks of a remake in 2010. Vinnie Jones was one of those talking it up. Um, the accountant uh, director, Gavin O'Connor, uh, along with Anthony Tambakis, they wrote a draft of the script in 2017. And the plan then was for Jean Collet Serra to direct the film. That story came up in 2019. And just to put into uh, into context, uh, Jean Collet Serra has directed uh, the upcoming Jungle Cruise uh, starring Emily Blunt and Dwayne Johnson, which is heavily influenced, ironically, by the African Queen, by the look of it. He's also doing Black Adam, Black Adam as well, uh, also with Dwayne Johnson. Um, he has formed directing football films, though, because he did Goal 2, Living the Dream, not one lots of us saw. But nonetheless, uh, he is currently the person who's set to bring Escape to Victory back to the screen um whether he can top the original film though i think that's a bit of a challenge because for all its flaws and i'm quite happy to accept there are many of them few of them get the beautiful game like escape to victory does and to use football parlance we're at half time we're at the halfway point of this latest episode of film story so just a couple of small favors if you don't mind if you enjoy this podcast i am 100 percent an independent producer i am that nerdy one man in a room with a battered laptop and a microphone the only reason i've got this far is thanks to word of mouth from people like you good selves if you do like this podcast please 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 uh, subscribe to it and leave ideally a hugely positive review at your podcast repository of choice also I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Simon Brew. I put the uh, funds raised from that into buying the bits and bobs for this podcast and paying its assorted fees and also into the Film Stories website and paying writers to do more and more Film Stories for that. That's at filmstories.co.uk. And now I'm going to move on to the second of the two films uh, I'm talking about in this episode. I'm a huge fan of Kevin Costner, so it's long past time I've done another of his movies. Let's go to 1992. Here's a clip. Frank Farmer to see Miss Marin. What? Alexander Graham Bell to see Miss Marin. All right. Bill said he used to be with the Secret Service. I was two years with Carter, four with Reagan. Reagan got shot. Not on my ship. All my colors. 
Boys. Right. You don't look like a bodyguard. This is my disguise. <laughs> well, his timing's good. That then is an excerpt from the trailer from 1992's The Bodyguard, directed by Mick Jackson, uh, written by Lawrence Kasdan, starring Whitney Houston, Kevin Costner, Gary Kemp. Um, You get uh, a little bit of Robert Wall for your money in there. Debbie Reynolds pops up at one point. Richard Schiff in an early role. He would go on to do the West Wing not too long after this one. But the story of The Bodyguard, even though it came out in 1992, actually goes back to the mid-1970s. And it goes back to an ambitious screenwriter by the name of Lawrence Kasdan, who at that point in Hollywood circles was pretty much a nobody. Now, he had an idea for a a film. He was uh, working as a copywriter for advertising, but he hadn't sold a single script when he started working on The Bodyguard. And in fact, he would write seven or eight screenplays over the course of many years, trying to break into Hollywood, trying to get an agent, trying to get something sold. The influence for The Bodyguard came from an Akira Kurosawa film, Yojimbo. Um, I think that influence is pretty worn large throughout the final movie as well. But it was off the back of The Bodyguard, he w- of writing this script, that he was able to get an agent for the first time. He'd written it with Steve McQueen and Diana Ross in mind. Uh, those were the people in his head at the point where he was putting it together. And his new LA agent was pretty optimistic that this one would find a home. His new LA agent was, however, incorrect that the film was shopped around uh, for for quite a while and it was rejected, as Kasdan says, 67 times in the 1970s. Now, it did finally get close to being made. Uh, Towards the end of 1978, Ryan O'Neill and Diana Ross were toying with the idea of making the film. However, what happened then was uh, Diana Ross pulled out of the film and the production was off. Even before Ross had got involved, actually, there was a moment where it looked like John Borman uh, was was in in line to direct the film. And Borman and Kasdan worked together on on a new draft and they changed the movie quite a lot as it happened. But Borman then uh, pulled out of the project for reasons unknown. Then it went to Ryan O'Neill and Diana Ross. Then it just stopped again. And Kasdan was he wasn't quite back to square one, but the bodyguard certainly was. What changed for Kasdan, though, was he got noticed that Spielberg um, had uh, he was on Spielberg's radar and would go and work on Raiders of the Lost Ark. He was on George Lucas's radar. He would go and work on the Star Wars films. But also Kasdan broke through as a director with the film Body Heat. And at the point uh, that Body Heat was a hit, he had the clout to make another film. Now, there's an excellent interview with Kasdan, which I found on the website, the hollywoodinterviewer.blogspot.com, which I, I, I do recommend checking out. And he talked about the moment when he had the opportunity to direct The Bodyguard himself. That Coming off the back of Body Heat, though, the script for The Bodyguard had been through so many revisions and had changed so many times. I mean, he'd rewritten it, what, a dozen times, if not more. And so he came to a decision about what does he ultimately want to do next. And he wasn't really keen to make The Bodyguard his next project. Instead, he turned his attention to another script that he'd written, uh, a film uh, which would result in the film The Big Chill. And that would bring him into into contact for the first time with an actor by the name of Kevin Costner. Now, it's a fairly infamous uh, story that Costner was cast in The Big Chill, which Kasdan was also direct, and he ended up on the cutting room floor that you, you, you see his body, but you don't never hear him speak. And thus he makes in that film for a piece of, of really interesting IMDb trivia. Nonetheless, the pair, Costner and Kasdan, struck up a friendship. And when Kasdan then moved on to make the film Silverado, he cast Costner in that film as well. Now, Silverado is a terrific film if you've not had the pleasure of seeing it. It's really funny. And it's while the pair were making that, that Kasdan gave Costner a copy of the Bodyguard script, told him about it. Costner asked to read it. Costner really liked it as well. But at that point, he didn't have the clout to make the film. He couldn't make it happen. He wasn't yet movie star Kevin Costner, even though he was in the ascendancy. 
However, his ascendancy was coming and over the course of the following years, Costner would hit in films like No Way Out, The Untouchables, ultimately uh, Dances with Wolves would win him Oscars as well. And he was finally at a point where he could make pretty much any film he wanted and a movie studio would sign the cheque. That is what happened, that Costner had remembered The Bodyguard. He asked uh, asked Kasdan if they could press ahead with the film. He actually asked Lawrence Kasdan if he was interested in directing the movie but Kasdan would later admit that he had some reservations about his own script that he wouldn't quite know how to resolve one or two of the problems within it nonetheless he was happy that the film would go ahead and Costner uh, set it up at Warner Brothers as part of his un- under his TIG Productions banner at this stage he'd just been making JFK with Oliver Stone for Warner Brothers he would go on and do A Perfect World with Clint Eastwood for the studio as well I've covered all these in previous Film Stories podcasts if you need a bit more of a Costner hit So at this point, the search was on for a director and separately, uh, a British director by the name of Mick Jackson had been directing a film called L.A. Story based off a script by Steve Martin and a really, a really lovely film, L.A. Story. Jackson would have quite the career in Hollywood throughout the 90s. He'd go on and do Volcano later on in the decade. But Costner called him up. Would he be interested in directing The Bodyguard? And for Jackson, here's one of the biggest movie stars in the world on the other side of the phone, offering him a big commercial project. Yeah, he'll have a slice of that. And he, 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 was, he signed up fairly quickly. At the point where it was clear the film was going to go, and it was ultimately uh, announced as going in April of 1991, the was still willing to do rewrites on the film. The, 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 the original script that he'd written in the mid-70s had changed an awful lot, but it was that, really, that Costner and Mick Jackson really wanted to get back to the heart of. Now, this is where having a movie star with enormous clout uh, on, on his side in your corner really helps, because Costner was able to push back. He was producing the film as well, along with his uh, his friend and business partner, Jim Wilson. Um, He's willing to push back and basically get the, set, the, the script reset back several drafts uh, to go back pretty much to the core of what they originally, what Kasdan originally had in the mid-1970s. What had changed significantly over the many rewrites is the film had got a lot lot darker and a lot more violent and Mick Jackson talks about this in the DVD extras for The Bodyguard but they pulled the film back from that there was still then the, the case of the question of who do you cast in the movie because they had Kevin Costner so they had a go project but also the story of the bodyguard is of a man guarding uh, a pop star turned a, a pop star come actor and they needed someone who could carry all of that off it bluntly and again they talk about this in the disc extras they were for the role of Rachel Marant they were on the search for something of a diva now divas don't come in heavy supply certainly not not of the profile that the body Bodyguard was after and assorted names were thrown around. Uh, Debbie Harry was one, Janet Jackson, Dolly Parton was mentioned at one point, as was Madonna. Um, I can't imagine Costner would ever cast Madonna in anything given the slight that she aimed at him in her concert film Truth or Dare in Bed with Madonna. And the production was soon instead zeroing in on Whitney Houston to take on the co-lead role in the movie. Houston at this stage in her career, while she was uh, one of the biggest movie stars on the planet, she was also constant fodder for the tabloids that were happy to feast on her life, feast on her career and pretty much made a fair game. The tragedy of which is discussed in a couple of documentaries that have come out in recent years just about the hell that she was having to go through at that point. Um, She thus, in the perception of the world at that point, she came to the bodyguard with something of a reputation um, although those documentaries would put a far more human light on that and, and what she was up against. Nonetheless, for even though she was a huge music star, which fitted one part of what they needed for the character of Rachel Marin, Houston didn't have acting experience at this point. Now, she went in and did screen, a screen test for The Bodyguard. And again, this is a huge megastar going in and auditioning and screen testing for a film. So that gives you an idea of just how a, 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 a kind of a humble side, really, to her. Um, now, Costner felt that it wasn't really necessary to screen test her, but there was kind of an insistence from the studio that they needed to know whether Whitney Houston could carry a movie. The testing went well. Costner and Houston got on and it got to the point where they were willing to uh, delay the film to work around Whitney Houston's schedule, which is ultimately what happened. What, what happened? Uh, Costner would say on the disc extras it would be delayed by up to a year as a, as a result of waiting for Houston to come uh, to, to 
have the time to be freed up to, for an expanse of time to make the film in the first place. She took her preparation for it really seriously as well and she had conversations with Mick Jackson at one point about whether she needed acting lessons for the film and Jackson was really adamant that she didn't, that he wanted something a lot more natural and he wanted her to bring her natural singing uh, singer demeanour to the role of Rachel Maron, that it wasn't quite he wanted her to play herself what he didn't want to do uh, to do was go off, get a load of acting lessons and become someone completely transformed from who she really was, he wanted her to keep in touch with, with what had brought her to the role for the first, uh, in the first place Filming would finally get underway then on the 25th of November 1991. It would run through till March of 1992 as well. And the bulk of the production would be in the California area of America, also in Florida as well. The film came with a $25 million budget and it was a big Hollywood production as well. But a lot of the early press around the film surrounded Kevin Costner's haircut. Now, in the early 90s, Harrison Ford had taken the mantle on where it came to haircuts first and foremost when he decided to go much shorter for the thriller Presumed Innocent and Costner followed in this trend and he, he, sa- he said he modelled his portrayal of the character, the character of Frank Farmer that he plays in the film on Steve McQueen and he does talk, I mean it comes up in the extras on the disc more than once where he talks about I got a lot of grief for my haircut but in the years that ensued more and more people took on that style well my hair's gone short and fallen out naturally but let's Let's not dwell on that. Crucially for the movie, Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner would work together really well. And given that there's a romance at the heart of the film, that's probably a good thing as well. And the story would go that Costner was very protective of Houston, but also that Houston would help Costner with his singing and Costner would help Houston with her acting. And it's easy to overlook the fact that Kevin Costner has gone on to have a music career on the side with his band Modern West. So he's not he's not unknown for banging out a tune or two himself. Lawrence Kasdan went to uh, talk to in an interview with Collider that he did a few years ago uh, and he remained involved in the project throughout this wasn't a case of the uh, of the writer disappearing but he talked about Houston he said she was very vulnerable about acting she'd never acted before and to his credit Kevin Costner was very good with her he was very supportive of her and he helped her along with the part that said, there were one or two, uh, no, one or two huge problems on the filming of this one, and it would be remiss of me not to note the fact that there was actually a death on the set of this one in an onset uh, incident that took the life of one of the crew drivers, a man called Bill Vitagiliano, uh, who was crushed during uh, preparation for a scene. Uh, also, there during production, it was said that Whitney Houston had a miscarriage as well, which caused uh, a, 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 caused an absence for her, fully understandably, from the set of the movie. But again, the the tabloids were prowling around this particular film, not least because it was shooting in Los Angeles as well. That this was a far more accessible film. Well, Costner always said when he went off and did Dances with Wolves, they were out in the middle of nowhere, so it was a very hard one for people to keep tabs on, even if they wanted to. Of course, one of the uh, factors that the bodyguard is particularly well known for is its music. But uh, uh, not least Houston's rendition of Dolly Parton's song, I Will Always Love You, which comes towards the end of the movie. Now, this was not, I think this is pretty well known, this was not the original song for the film. And it's one of those Hollywood accidents that the song that's become so iconically attached to a movie was originally not intended for it at all. In fact, the original tune that Houston was uh, supposed to sing was a cover of the song What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. Now, David Foster was the man brought in to be the film's soundtrack producer. They knew that music was going to be absolutely pivotal to the to the film. Um, but Foster opened up the Billboard charts, having, th- uh, having thought they'd secured this song. And he saw that a singer by the name of, pa- of Paul Young had laid his hat there and called it home uh, by recording a cover of that song for the film fried green tomatoes which is sometimes known as fried green tomatoes at the whistle stop cafe as a consequence they couldn't use the song another film had got there first and they didn't want to be following in quick succession with exactly the same tune so then producer jim wilson he picked up the mantle and he came to kevin costner who an active producer on the movie with a bunch of songs to pick from one of those was dolly parton i will always love you costner zeroed in on that and it was quickly chosen to uh, to 
replace what becomes of the brokenhearted in the movie. Furthermore, when when Whitney Houston sings the song in the movie, she sings it a cappella, and that again was a Costner suggestion that he he suggested they they try it that way, and they found and and there's no arguing with box office on this. They found it worked far more successfully in the final movie, and that was the version that they went with. One of the fun things in the film is there's a sequence that takes place at the Academy Awards. I'm going relatively spoiler light here, but there, just to say, there is a moment in the movie where an assortment of Oscars are given out. And if you compare the names of the nominees of the Oscars and some of the winners in that fake Academy Awards sequence that's uh, hosted by Robert Wall, and then compare it with the credits list for The Bodyguard at the end of the movie, let's just say there might be a little bit of a Venn diagram work going on there less fun there had been some pressure going into production on the bodyguard and i I sense this came from the studio to address the fact that the bodyguard is ultimately a romance that had a mixed race couple at the heart of it and this was very unusual for hollywood even in the early 1990s and there was a push to include a scene to write a scene in the movie that would address this and explain this and and explain the mixed race romance um costner was was adamant that wasn't going to happen and pushed back against it and this is where movie star clout i think is used very much for good um that the argument was if you don't make an issue of this it's not an issue um because bluntly it's not an issue um as a consequence that sequence was never written for the film and that was one change that was able to be resisted there was talk about um, different ways to do the ending of the film. I'm going mildly spoilery here. There's not much I can do about that. That you, you get a tribute ultimately to Casablanca towards the end of the movie. But in Lawrence Kasdan's original script, the, the way he'd envisaged the bodyguard ending was Rachel Maron and Frank Farmer completely going their separate ways. Um, I don't think it's the hugest spoiler in the world to suggest that isn't necessarily what happens. And in fact, there's a scene at the end of the film, uh, right, right near the end, where Costner and Houston are together and the camera is circling them and circling them and circling them and it's on a dolly track and when they were shooting that film what you don't see is the camera operator fell off the camera as it was going faster and faster round the track and as a consequence even while the sequence was still shooting he had to clamber back on and basically resume the shot and that is that is the shot that you see in the final film. It's one of those moments where it would have been equally as entertaining and that's no slight on the end of the film to be clear um, if the camera had been turned around and we'd seen that that cut of the movie as well now the film once it had wrapped up it, it went it went before test audiences and they were a little bit piddly on this one uh, not least because there was criticism of Whitney Houston's performance from the initial test audiences of the bodyguard now Costner and Jackson watching the final cut appreciated that the chemistry between Farmer and Marin wasn't really there in in the version that they were looking at Costner had also got built into his contract at this point that he was allowed to re-edit the movie if he wasn't happy with the director's cut of the film that under Directors Guild of America rules Jackson was in entitled to present a first cut i don't think there was a massive falling out on this but conversely it's pretty well known that costner clashed with director kevin reynolds on robin hood prince of thieves and and then again on waterworld a few years later and there's a story that this stems from an unhappy experience making the tony scott directed movie revenge which is why one of the reasons why costner took more of a hands-on approach with his subsequent movies in also with the bodyguard though he felt the responsibility of making houston look as good as possible that he promised her at the start of this project that he was basically going to look after her and make sure that the end result was fair to her and, and, and did present her in a really good light so some re-editing work then got underway and what that editing work did was it took out some of uh, Whitney Houston's longer speeches that were that were originally in the film and instead it brought in a few more close-ups of her and gave her a few more just little moments in the final cut of the movie and as a consequence that played a lot better and that was ultimately the version that was released in cinemas.
It was queued up for it was queued up to debut in the US then in November of 1992. It's promoted by what what now is a really famous poster of uh, of Frank Farmer uh, basically carrying Rachel Maron away with all in all in hues of blue. Um, it's only recently been revealed. It's not actually Whitney Houston on that poster that it was shot at a, that that picture was taken at a point where she was away from the set and it uses her body double um, that Costner decided they should just take the shot and they did that is ultimately the post that they used the reviews for the film were really quite sniffy and there was a a, a lot of pushback uh, just how conventional it was and how it it wasn't really pushing any boundaries but conversely this one really really resonated with audiences that uh, whilst there were some pretty decent reviews for the film it was the audience really that would power this one to become the success that it ultimately became Um, It didn't actually even open in first place at the American box office that Home Alone 2 had opened the week before. And that was uh, that that was number one by some distance. Aladdin was number two. The Bodyguard opened at number three over the Thanksgiving weekend in in 1992. um, And it would open with 16 million dollars, just holding off Dracula, Malcolm X, Passenger 57 in there. Uh, under siege as well but crucially with the bodyguard it stuck around by it, it went up to second place the week after it stuck around a third the week after that and right through the christmas period it was it was living in the top five of the charts also um the film what the film soundtrack was selling by the truckload at its peak the soundtrack to the bodyguard was shifting a million copies a week at its peak and the title song i will always love you sung by whitney houston well it just took over the uk singer singles chart for well it felt like forever at the time the bodyguard was critics be damned uh, a, a big sizable smash hit it would go on to do 121 million in america 289 million outside of america its gross of 410 million dollars was a handsome return on a 25 million dollar initial investment even taking into account the uh, the, the slice of the tape that costner was entitled to and ordinarily, in spite of apparently The Bodyguard was one of the 10 biggest films of all time at the point of its release, I read whilst researching this. Um, ordinarily, though, that would be the end of the story. But in the case of The Bodyguard, not so, because two further projects followed. First of all, Kevin Costner um, pursued a sequel that there was, even though he doesn't do sequels to his films, um, there was talk of him making The Bodyguard 2 with Princess Diana. And that uh, the, the two, uh, he been on record with interviews about this the two had conversations about this um, before her untimely death in 1997 which put an end to those conversations and there was no chance of a bodyguard sequel continuing after that then in 2012 the bodyguard made its debut as a stage musical and that's proven to be a hugely successful one as well that it ran in the west end for a number of years after debuting in 2012 and then has gone on to have several successful tours all around the world as well 2012 would of course be the year that we tragically lost Whitney Houston too at the age of just 48 and I I think one of the telling things about how much affection the bodyguard is held in after all this time was after she passed it was one of the uh, one of the projects that people cited it was one of the projects that people quoted uh, and went back to and had a look at and I think this critically derided film from the early 90s and I've had pot shots at it myself in the past but I, I like it more and more each time I watch it um, is one of those films that's either a comfort film or something that means a lot to a lot of people and I for one have got no intention of throwing brickbacks at that which brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. Uh, you can hear more, well, you can find more of my waffling on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can find more from the Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod uh, on Twitter as well. Um, I've just taken delivery of the new issue of Film Stories Junior magazine, which is the world's only, I think, print film magazine for under 15s. You can buy copies of that at store.filmstories.co.uk as well as our regular monthly Film Stories magazine as well. Uh, www.filmstories.co.uk UK is a website that we update every weekday with loads of news stories with even more features and even more film stories that you'll find there you can find more film stories on our YouTube channel too youtube.com slash film stories we hide about on Facebook from time to time facebook.com slash film stories online but I think that's more than enough waffling off me for this week as always the main thing is you all stay safe and well and I thank you so much for your support and I thank you so much for listening and I'll be back soon 
with another bunch of film stories. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.